I had my sister in my life who every day I was thinking, am I going to get a call that she's died of an overdose? When we have to accept that, like, no, sometimes we can do everything right and the worst happens, that's really hard for us to sit with. That's what it is. We're all going to lose someone. So it's important to have these, you know, definitions at our disposal, I think, for when it does happen. At least I think you do have a little bit of a head start to know some of these terminologies and consistencies throughout Groove. Because even though we all grieve differently, there is, I'm sure you know even better than I, there is a large amount of people that are feeling the same thing. Lizzo, that rhymes with pizza. Thank you so much for for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here. I think your platform with What's Your Grief is super interesting. And the words that, you mentioned to me on Instagram, for those that don't know Lisa and her platform in What's Your Grief, I'll have you explain it much better than me, but you worded it as something, it was kind of an alternative to people that are grieving regarding maybe that someone doesn't want therapy and you created this grief support group that apparently has reached millions of people, which is so tremendous into the community that is grief that inspired from your own loss. But you also said something along the lines that you created this platform, which includes grief support for others that you weren't even a person that particularly were looking for. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that is. I think that's true. And I think Eleanor, who I co-founded What's Your Grief With? I mean, she would agree with that. I think both of us in our own losses, like support groups were not our thing. Counseling wasn't really our thing. And yet both of us ended up working in mental health, working in the grief space in some of those more traditional ways. And ultimately we're like, we would like to have the thing that we wanted and never had. And so I think that was a part of what it came from. And another part was just like, we were working with people in this really unique situation where they weren't seeking out grief support. We were meeting with people at the hospital at their time of their loved ones, usually traumatic and unexpected death. So it was like the opposite of hospice. And then we were kind of assigned to work with them for two years afterwards, whether or not they wanted grief support. And of course they could opt out, but it wasn't like a situation where people were like, hey, I'm looking for a grief therapist. It was, hey, you're the person who at the hospital I met on the worst day of my life, and now you're with me for the next two years. And so we saw this huge range of some people were like, yes, support groups, therapy, I'm all in. And other people were like, absolutely not. Like, what else you got? And a lot of times the answer was like, we don't have a lot of else, like journaling maybe. Uh, You know, there wasn't a lot of other options. And so What's Your Grief really came out of that, of like, how do we create a meaningful space for people who are looking for alternatives or a supplement? I mean, obviously some people really use us as a supplement to support groups in counseling. So with your platform, what do you think has been the biggest response in regards to what what are people responding to the most in regards to what you put out there as grief support? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think just like good old psychoeducation. Like I think that there's so many misconceptions about grief. There's so much people don't understand about grief. I think a lot of times people are really desperate for information to make sense of their own experience. And not everybody wants to have to go to a therapist to get that information. And so I think when people can feel like they get really good, clinically sound mental health information about grief, and they can do that at home without having to, you know, kind of do anything that makes them uncomfortable or talk to someone else, 
that is something really people really love. I think the other thing is that Eleanor and I both used creative expression a lot in our grief, our personal grief. And I'm not like an artist. I'm not, I wouldn't even like necessarily call myself a creative person per se, but photography ended up being this like really comforting thing for me and my own grief and Eleanor too. And we met as professionals working in an organization, but we really bonded over the fact that we had both weirdly used that in our own grief coping. And so we have done all these things of using other things, using cooking, using photography, using all these other creative outlets that don't necessarily look like grief support using those. And I think that has really, a lot of people have really connected with that as well, because so many people have something that they feel like this helped me in my grief, but a lot of people wouldn't even recognize that that has anything to do with grief. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like when it comes to healing, it usually seems as, and when you use the word expression, like me talking it out, specifically focusing on a conversation about how you feel this or that. And when it comes to creative expression, it's kind of a an indirect way of handling it. And even though you're not directly maybe talking about it, you're doing something else. So when it, when it comes to quote unquote, doing something else, whatever the creative expression may be, is that, is that a real, what kind of outlet is that? It's not just a distraction, right? No, no. I think for a lot of people, it's the opposite of a distraction. Like it is actually something that kind of helps them feel connected sometimes with their emotions. Whereas in other situations, they may feel like I go all day just trying to like survive the day and not think about my emotions and my grief. And then when I get home and I write music, like I'm connected with my my emotions in a different way. I'm tapping into that um, in a different way. And not even necessarily because I'm trying to, like the song that I create is going to be a grief song. It sometimes is just the fact that we get connected with our emotions and that allows us to create something different and feel connected. For some people, it's like going to the gym and it's like, I love that physical, that moment of letting like physicality of my grief that I've felt pain in my body. And I like to be able to kind of get that out. And I actually spend time with my grief when I'm in the gym lifting that people will say they feel that connection. And, you know, Freud really did a huge disservice, like back in the early days of mental health by uh, saying that people needed to talk about emotions in order to process them and deal with them. And there's no research that shows that that's true. Like we don't actually have to talk about it. We can't avoid it. But there are all these other things we can do to connect with our emotions that aren't necessarily talking, that, that work for lots of people. That's incredible. And how much have you found the community aspect be a healing process? The fact that you're surrounded by other people that have you know, shared a similar experience or even just any experience regarding loss? Yeah, I, I think that that's huge, right? I think when people, especially it's huge for people who are feeling themselves isolated. And by nature, I think people who seek community and grief, they're seeking it both because they're maybe people who like connection or want connection, or they're missing something in their natural existing support system, right? Like they, they're not connecting with the people around them. And so being able to just know I'm not the only one. There's other people who are going through this. There's other people whose losses maybe 
are different than mine, and yet there's something that connects us together. Like that, I think, is something that feels really comforting for a lot of people. Um, and then there are plenty of people who, you know, do have the support they need in their support systems. They don't necessarily need to find something online. They don't necessarily need to find a podcast where people are telling their stories because they've got that in their personal lives. So I think it's about meeting needs of different people and knowing that there's a range for everybody. Tapping back to this, it triggered me when you said range. I don't know why, but earlier you said when you met some of these people that had these traumatic or unexpected losses that they were quote unquote stuck with you for the next two years. Was that just an arbitrary number or do you find that a two year ends up being an average amount of time to, even though you never fully heal, but what, what did you mean by that two year mark? Was that just, did you just throw that out there or that meaning behind it? No. So that's a good question. So literally the program that, that I worked for two years was the officially the length of time that we were assigned as part of what they called aftercare. So aftercare lasted for two years. And a lot of hospice programs, actually, their aftercare only lasts for one year. And I think that that, unfortunately, sometimes reinforces that like myth that's out there that somehow like the first year is the worst and then it gets easier. The organization I worked for really believed that for many people, the first year is devastating and hard, but it's also kind of a blur and you're just trying to survive and get through all the firsts. And it's sometimes the second year where like reality really sets in of like, this is forever. Like this is, you know, we got through the first Christmas. Now it's not just the second Christmas. It's like now I'm thinking about the second Christmas and the 50 more Christmases ahead of me without this person. And so that second year often brought up this whole different range of emotions. So that was why the program I worked for included the second year. It's not to say that the third year is then, you know, it's magically all better. It's not, but we felt like that gave a good bit of support. And by the end of the second year, people often knew a bit more of what they needed. Um, the end of the first year, people are often just trying to even figure that out. Uh, And the program we worked for, people had the option to continue if they wanted to. um, But that was just the formal, I guess, program that existed. Got it. Interesting. Okay. And I I would love to tap into, you know, your own personal story of grief that, you know, ignited all this. But before we do that, uh, I'm interested in, you know, you being surrounded by, you know, traumatic events in regards to traumatic and unexpected loss. I don't know if you would call it a unit or what you would say. Please correct me on that. But I, I feel like being around that constantly, I'm sure has an impact on you. Uh, feel free to kind of dilute on that, you know, w- what you've experienced there, however you will. But was there ever, I'm sure you've had a many experiences, but was there one specific story that stands out the most, not to, you know, desensitize any other experiences you have? Was there any one event or one death that you witnessed that was most impactful on your personal life and moving forward from that? Um, oh, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, I, I guess there's a, a couple of answers to that. I think one is that I had uh, I had family members who had when I was working at that job really severe substance use disorders, and so every time I worked with somebody who had someone die of an overdose, I think it impacted me in a personal way because it was just that that I had, you know, I had my sister in my life who every day I was thinking, am I going to get a call that she's died of an overdose? And so 
all of those cases, I think, really did affect me. I had to do a lot of work of my own, like, personal stuff with those cases and working with, you know, doing the, you know, professional kind of supervision work to say, okay, is this clouding my ability to be a good support person because it hits so close to home for me? I think it was really good for me as a, in all ways, right? It really helped me to look at my own stuff and also figure out when I needed to say, hey, like I might not be the best person for this case. It's really way too close to home. So I think that was like one one interesting thing. But I think the other piece of the ones that really hit home for me, um, and I mean, God, I, I where I think cases where there were accidents with any time. The one that comes most to mind is I worked with a family, and this is unfortunately not an uncommon situation, where a baby wrapped a cord around her neck, a really little girl in her crib, from the the blinds, the curtains in the room. And, you know, there's so many situations, though. There were other deaths that were infants and toddlers just being infants and toddlers and, you know, a dresser falling over, uh, you know, things that just happen in the home where parents who are wonderful, loving, amazing parents do all of the, the things and yet still these accidents can happen or these things can occur. And I think that to me really shaped, <laughs> I think just the way I think about the world of just like how senseless things happen. And it's really, really hard as parents and as people to sometimes live with those things after loss. Those were the ones that were the ones that kept me up at night sometimes for sure. And those senseless deaths that happen, like you're saying, these ones that are accidents and, and you can't really have explanations for it. It's not as if it was negligent of some sort. What is the approach there? What is the approach for someone who lost someone to an accident or something that really wasn't preventable because I feel like when that happens, I'm sure there's a lot of survivor's guilt and thinking what I could have done when realistically perhaps there's nothing you could have done. It just, it's senseless, like you said. What is that approach to someone who's experiencing that type of death? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a long process, right? I think one of the things that's really hard is that guilt is an emotion that people tend to minimize. So other people in your life, if it's a situation that's an accident, something like that, and you're expressing, I feel guilty. And they're just like, no, no, don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. Well, that doesn't give us any space to actually be able to unpack the guilt and to sort through it and figure out what we need to sort through. And so I think part of it is the the work is like creating the space for it and to be able to say like, yes, anyone in this situation would be feeling a tremendous amount of guilt. And also just because we feel guilty, it doesn't mean we are guilty. And like being able to know that we need to to look at our guilt and just because we have the feeling, that doesn't actually mean we're culpable. And so with this, a lot of in, in mental health, there's these two big terms in that relate to guilt. One of them is uh, counterfactual thinking and the other is hindsight bias. And you know, hindsight bias is really the fact that once we know the outcome of a situation, we go back and we look at what happened at the time and we think that things were obvious that weren't, that weren't obvious. We think we should have seen certain things that no reasonable person would have seen. And it's like, we can't unknow what we know now when we go back and look at the past. 
And so part of the work is sometimes how do we do the best we can to go back and really remember what did we know at the time? If we can try to set aside the outcome and what happened now, how can we really judge ourselves and be compassionate to ourselves just based on who we were in that moment, which was often a person who was doing the best we could with the information that we had at the time. And then the other piece is counterfactual thinking, which is, you know, we go back and we often have this moment where we think, okay, if I had just done X differently, everything would have been okay, right? And we'll we do this in all sorts of different losses where we just think, oh, if I had just stayed at home five minutes longer, then he, I would have been home and called 911 or I would, you know, all of these things. And the reality is, of course, we have absolutely no idea what would have happened if we could go back to that moment and do something differently. There are still a million different outcomes. Maybe that person would have survived. Maybe they still would have died. But we don't know for sure that it would have been this perfect situation that we imagine. Also, and I think sometimes more importantly, is that what we're looking for is something to blame because we or someone to blame because we want to imagine there's sort of order and logic and control in the world. Like if I could have just corrected this mistake or done this thing differently, everything would have been okay. And that makes me feel like next time I can do it better. I can protect myself. You know, everything will be okay. When we have to accept that, like, no, sometimes we can do everything right and the worst happens, that's really hard for us to sit with. And so sometimes being able to understand that our guilt and our self-blame is actually us trying to find order and logic and control in a world where there's not always order and logic and control, it can help us to be a little gentler with ourselves and realize that maybe it's not all of our fault. We couldn't have magically changed the outcome. Uh, there's just so much in there that you just said that I think is so important in a perspective that I never looked at. But if you put like a title on something that I feel like I, I had a grasp on, but from what I'm taking from what you just said is uh, the many important things you just mentioned was, I think, being easy on yourself sometimes. But it's so easy to, like you said, either point the blame or take the blame and think what you could have done X, Y, Z. But that finding that acceptance that this is the way it is sometimes, you can put your best foot forward. You can really make the best steps forward and shit just happens. And I feel like it's a double-edged sword because even if you find that acceptance when someone lost, whether unexpected or whatever, and you accept, okay, this is the bad only so much information then. So I made the best steps I could at that time and it still happened. But then there's like a level of potential like anxiety and a little bit of being frantic moving forward that knowing that this can happen. Cause it's like a different thing when you see something happen externally on the news or to someone you know, but then when it happens to you, it's like a totally different ball game. It just hits you differently. So is there, even for people that do find acceptance, like I did the best I could and it still happened to find peace there. Is there another level to that though? Even they find that acceptance, they still feel anxiety that knowing that, wow, this hit home and this could happen again. Is that a whole nother healing process? Oh, absolutely. I think anxiety, people often underestimate how much grief can be this onset of anxiety because we suddenly realize that the world is an unpredictable and uncertain place that bad things don't just happen to other people. They happen to us and to people that we love. And 
that can create this baseline anxiety for people that sometimes they've never experienced before. And so that's a space where learning tools of how do we learn to live with anxiety and we could I mean spend so much time on just what that looks like for different people it's different for everyone for me we because I I've certainly had that in my own life of having that increase of anxiety I think most people have it after someone dies and sometimes you can do a little bit of logical reasoning with things but anxiety isn't always logical and reasonable. Sometimes we just have to say, yep, I'm always going to have a little more anxiety about this than certain other people. And how do I not let that anxiety control my life? How do I not let it change the decisions that I make? Or how do I not let it like prevent me from doing things that are still important to me or that are connected with my values? Sometimes we think the answer is I have to get rid of all of the anxiety. There's always, for a lot of people who've been through loss, going to be a little bit more of that uncertainty and that worry. It's just how do I learn to cope with it and manage it that can be the difference between is it debilitating or interfering with my life versus is it just something that's a little bit of the product of loss and having gone through that, but I've learned how to be able to to manage it. In some ways, I think it you know, I don't know, this is maybe me from the, the advantage of the, a lot of distance from my loss. Like it's been a lot of years since, uh, since at least some of my really significant losses. You know, I can say that, that that anxiety or my knowledge that the world is an uncertain, unpredictable place, I think also helps me to value and appreciate life a little bit more. Um, and I'm able to see that about myself uh, is that I, I know like, who knows? Today might be it. Like none of us know what's going to happen when we walk out the door. And I think that that has made me maybe make some decisions in life that somebody else wouldn't have necessarily made um, that are great decisions because of my valuing of how limited time can be. That's beautiful. And that's a perfect transition because I would love to uh, you know, learn a little bit more about your experience and what drove you to essentially, you know, have this amazing platform in what is grief. And uh, I mean, feel free to, again, to kind of get into it as much as you can, but just to kind of hit the nail on the head and start it off. What, what did you find in your own personal experience losing your father? And I'm sure, you know, you have other stories uh, that what was the most difficult part of your own personal grief? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a hard one, right? The most difficult part. So I was, um, I was 18 when my dad died. And, you know, I think oftentimes people draw these distinctions between expected versus unexpected deaths. And I I think my dad's death, weirdly, was like a a little bit of both. Um, My dad had been diagnosed about a year and a half before with a uh, bone marrow disorder where he was going to need a bone marrow transplant. Eventually, we knew that he was listed for a bone marrow transplant. But he was himself. Like he never got sick. He didn't look sick. Like that wasn't anything. There was nothing imminent where we were worried he might die. Um, And then very quickly one day he got an infection that his, because his bone marrow didn't, wasn't working well, his body couldn't fight off. And three weeks later he died. So it was, sort of like we knew he could die. And then all of a sudden he actually died. Um, So it was a a little bit of both of, I I guess, both of those experiences in some way. But I 
think for me, when I think back to that time, you know, people are always like, oh, it must have been so hard because you were so young and other people weren't going through it. I was a freshman in college when it happened. Um, And, you know, honestly, I think in part that actually, you know, I say this now, maybe maybe my memory just is isn't great. But I think in some ways that actually helped. Like I didn't have expectations of other people because I was like, shit, nobody's, nobody's that I know has gone. I mean, a few people, but not a lot of people have gone through this. I didn't expect that my friends were going to know what I needed. I wouldn't have known what they needed at the time. And so I think it, for me, made it actually a little easier for me to go easy on my support system and for me to tell people what I was going through because I didn't expect them to know and to to be able to kind of talk about some of my needs. So I think that what wasn't the hardest part. I think the probably the hardest part was that my mom and my sister and I all grieved so differently that I we were just all grieving so differently that I think we didn't really know how to support each other. And I look back on that now and I can see that really clearly and see really clearly how much it affected all of us. And, you know, my mom and my sister are incredible, wonderful, loving, amazing people. Um, but we just were in different places with our grief. And I think that, that made it really hard. That's a that's a fascinating topic because it is a very specific thing that I've always pinpointed on grief is that we all grieve differently and it's okay however you grieve. But how how do you how do you navigate that dynamic for people that have these you know different facets of grief around them whether it be siblings friends whoever it is because that could make or break families in many way. And I feel for, I don't know if how, how you get maybe how you handled it is something you could suggest but what is that managing aspect when you're surrounded by people that are grieving differently than you? Yeah, you know, I I can say that probably like what we did is what I wouldn't suggest now. <laughs> now as a professional, especially, I can look back and be like, oh God, I wish I could go back to my 18-year-old self and and do it differently. I, I think what now I see as so important is in families or in friend groups or, you know, whatever it is, is being able to understand and communicate what we need from each other, even when it looks so different. And I think because my mom and my sister and I all had such different needs and we're doing things so differently, we just kind of ended up each letting each other do our own thing. (laughs) Um, And I think we just didn't talk about it a lot. Like we didn't talk about what was helping and what was not helping or why we were doing certain things or why, you know, my mom went to support groups and loved them and did all these things that really worked for her that didn't work at all for me. And I don't think we talked about that until 10 years later about the fact that she why groups were really helpful for her and what she liked and why they really weren't for me and what what I didn't like and what I was looking for instead. So I think we just, it created kind of a silence and it wasn't a silence around my dad. Like we certainly talked about my dad and memories of him, but I think in terms of like what was actually helping us to cope, we just 
none of us really talked about it. And with my sister, I think in a lot of ways, she wasn't get part of, um, my sister would say, certainly my dad's death really contributed to her developing a really severe heroin addiction just a couple of years after, I mean, within the, very shortly after my dad died. And I think a lot of that was that she, you know, wasn't, didn't know what she needed and wasn't necessarily getting exactly what she needed from us and from her friends. And she was, you know, younger, a lot younger than I was. And so I think that combination of things, I can look back now and I can see how not talking about it did a disservice for all of us. And it's not to say that you need to find the the thing that works for everybody. You don't. Like you can each have your own paths of coping and support, but making sure that you know, that we're talking about it and saying if we're not getting what we need, you know, and being able to talk about that, I think is hugely important within families. It also helps people to understand like, oh, it's not that that person's not grieving. It's just that they're grieving differently. Like I am very much, you know, they they talk about intuitive versus instrumental grievers, right? And intuitive grievers are more emotional and instrumental or more practical doers. They're like thinkers, a little more physical in their grief. And intuitive folks often want to talk more and in, instrumental often just want to get stuff done. And I was like in that instrumental place and my mom was much more in that intuitive place. But I think we didn't have the language for that at the time. We didn't get it at the time. And so I think we just kind of let each other be. Yeah, that's so important. I just learned about the instrumental um, and intuitive aspect when I, I'm sure you know, them, but the Good Morning Podcast with Sally and Em, they, they, they put me on with those specific titles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah they're fantastic. And uh, quick plug, yeah, go listen to Good Morning Podcast if you don't like mine. Uh, anyway, besides that, uh, and also yours. So you, you kind of got me thinking in regards to not uh, figuring out what you need when you're grieving and even the aspect of trying to figure out what the people close to you need and your sisters or your mom. How much is of that burden is on the person that's grieving to express what they need? And I, I guess it's a totally different thing if you just, maybe they don't even know. So maybe that's a loaded question of how do you figure out what you need? And also if your support group around you is not giving that, how does that work between each other? Does that make sense? Like what is the communication level? Is it on the person that's grieving or is it on the person that may want to offer support to figure out on their own? Yeah, I think that's like the million dollar question, right? right? Like, yeah, I think it's, it's so on hard. both. And I think it is hard in like, it is hard in our grief. Like a lot of times we don't know what we need. I think that was probably, you know, true for me at the time. Like we're all just like wading through the muck trying to figure out what we need. So I think that part of it is acknowledging that it's hard for somebody who's grieving to figure out what they need. But I think being able to check in and know, like, if I'm feeling angry at people in my support system for some reason, that's usually a sign that they're not meeting my needs in some way, right? Like, I'm feeling rushed or they're not allowing me to talk about my grief or they're, you know, trying to force me to you know, memorialize a person in a way that I don't feel good about or uncomfortable about, you know, using our emotions sometimes as cues to go like, what is this emotion telling me? Like, is it telling me something about what I need right now? Am I feeling isolated that nobody ever tells, nobody ever talks about the person who died anymore? And I feel 
like everybody's forgetting and everybody's moving on and I'm, I'm still here, right? Like, well, that's a sign that maybe I really do need people who will share stories with me. And I need people who want to memorialize. And I need to say like, Hey y'all, I know that maybe for you all, it's hard because it's triggering emotions, but I need to feel like we're still keeping dad's memory alive. And how can, how can we do that? Maybe it's not going to be with you all. Maybe it's going to be that like, it's with other family, it's with dad's friends, it's with whoever. But like using those things to say, oftentimes our emotions and grief are like pointing to unmet needs and using that to guide us and communicate a little bit with other people when we need to. And, you know, I think for other people, asking and being open, right? Just being able to say like, I don't know what you need. And I'm, I'm here, like, I'm here to tell stories if you want to tell stories. I'm here to listen to you cry. I'm here to, like, take you out dancing, and we won't even talk about the fact that, like, this ever happened, and that's okay if you just need some distraction and some healthy avoidance. Like, being able to say, I'm here for the whole range of it. Tell me what you need. Tell me if any of that sounds good. Tell me if that all sounds awful. Um, and then maybe we can kind of figure it out together. I think just being able to be like, I'm here to show up for it. And even if you don't know, we can try to figure it out. I love that. So that's my approach. Cause I, you know, I think that's a part of the million dollar question is a lot of people like don't know what to say when someone, you know, uh, just lost someone. So I, so is that your approach? So based on what you just said, your approach to someone who just lost someone is to ask the question, what do you need? Yeah, that's always what I do. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are just like, just show up, just offer, just show up with food. And I am like, don't you ever come to my house unannounced. Like, don't you bring me food I didn't ask for. So I I just think we need to be cautious, right? There's that, like, the golden rule is treat others how you want to be treated. But the platinum rule is treat others how they want to be treated. And I think that's so important in grief support is knowing that what worked for me might not be what works for you. And so the best thing I can do is say, like, I'm here. I want to ask you what you need. I do have some ideas. I have some, I have some things I'll throw out there if you're feeling completely like you have no idea what you need. But ultimately, I want to do what works for you. And like, if I'm getting it wrong, tell me that I'm getting it wrong. Like, you know, Tell me to stop texting you if I'm driving you nuts with too many text messages. But until you tell me to stop, I'm just going to keep sending you these check-in text messages. Um, And so I think just trying to feel that out, but definitely always asking people, you know, what, what they need and if they have a sense of what works for them and what doesn't. I love that. That's, that's similar to my approach. I feel like I'm, when I hear someone that lost someone, I, I give them like a grief support menu. I'm like, which one of these do you, do you want the appetizer? The full, what do you want? I'm here for whatever you need. If you want me to go fuck off, excuse my language, I'll go buzz off. So yep. I, I think that is important because I, I love that because it's, you know, like it's part of everyone grieves differently. So therefore everyone's going to need different things. And I think that's, and that's the whole point of us talking about this. Again, I feel like a lot of my audience, and I'm sure similar to yours, are people that have lost, but I really want to tap into people that haven't lost yet, because I think these conversations aren't morbid. Um, Yes, they're emotional. Yes, they can be sad. It's a different array of emotions, but it's part of like the anticipatory grief, because we're all going to learn. We're all going to lose someone. That's, That's what it is. 
We're all going to lose someone. So it's important to have these, you know, definitions at our disposal, I think, for when it does happen. At least I think you do have a little bit of a head start to know some of these terminologies and consistencies throughout Groove. Because even though we all grieve differently, there is, I'm sure you know even better than I, there is a large amount of people that are feeling the same thing. So it's like, yes, everyone grieves differently, but there are these little groups of people feeling exactly how you feel. And I, I should, maybe I shouldn't say exactly because there are a lot of variables and we're all, are, do, we do have different variables in our life that cause us to feel differently, but there's those baseline emotions, right? Yeah, I mean, there's that baseline experience of going other people have suffered. Like to me, it's like that suffering looks different. How we grieve looks different. But like, I, I'm not the only one who is li- living through this suffering. And I think there's a lot of weird comfort. Like it sounds weird to say that's comforting, but I think it is like, there's a comfort in that. And I, I wish, right. I think the other million dollar question is how do we get people to think about it before the moment that it happens to them? Because the experience that we have so often is people being like, wow, once I went through this loss, I saw grief everywhere. Like I looked around and suddenly everybody was talking about grief or I was noticing like all these other people and all the, these, like, it just felt like grief was everywhere. And it's that realization of like, it's always been everywhere. It's just that oftentimes we we like to have the blinders on to it. We don't want to think about it until it happens to us. We want to believe that we're going to be okay and we don't need that grief stuff. And it's kind of just its own little denial and avoidance. And I, I don't know how we change that for people. I think it's hard because I think like in an, a deep evolutionary way, we don't like thinking about the people we love the most not being here anymore. And we don't like thinking about the fact that we're going to be gone someday. And so I think it's really hard to, to push it. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think uh, the only way to do it is you and me keep talking about it and along with the other many great platform people out there that are doing it and just slam on the algorithm so people have no choice but to listen to us. <laughs> now that, yeah, there, there we go. You know what I mean? I th- that's why it's like we're laughing right now about this topic. That's what it's about. I mean, it's not that it's funny, but at the same time, we can have an objective conversation amidst it all. And I think you alluded to it earlier through your experience. Now you saw life in a different way where it makes you almost live life fuller because you've experienced death in your life and you realize, you know, how sensitive it is and the fragility of life and that in course makes you live life differently. And I, I feel for the people that makes, it makes people live life differently in the wrong way, because there are, you know, a couple ways you can go with it. And this is what this conversation is about is I'm hoping people are able to find the light because they can go one way where, and you can see life differently and live fuller and realize that I may not have tomorrow and you can love harder, but then there's people that just don't get around the bend and maybe their life isn't quite there yet. And, but, uh, but I do want those people to know that you can get there. And that's why I think it's so important what you're doing and your amazing platform. And I commend you for doing that. Um, and before we got out of there, I got a couple like hot shot questions I want to ask, but more importantly to a personal one for you, uh, how long has it been since your father and how are you doing today processing that? Or where are you right now with your own grief? Oh, yeah. So it's been a long time for me, right? I was 18 when my dad died. And then I'll say, too, I think another significant loss, my sister's boyfriend, who was like a member of our family, died when I was 26. And I'm 42 now, so I don't know what the math is on that. But it's been been a long time for both of those losses for me. And I think, you know, for me, grief 
it shapes everything, right? Like I don't think of grief as something that I'm trying to get to the other side of. I've always been a believer that we just need to figure out how to live with our grief because that's our connection. That's like everything. I'd never, you know, I was like, that's my connection to my dad. That's my connection to John. And yes, there's the pain, but also there's all of the, the good stuff. And so I think what's interesting for me is that the older I get, the more aware I am of how grief just keeps changing. Like for me, I'm, you know, I'm 42. It's been a long time to say I've, I'm sad that I never got to have an adult relationship with my dad, but like, I'm really sad that I never got to have an adult relationship with my dad. And I still, each new kind of chapter of my life, I think I feel that all over again. I'm like, God, I just wish we could like sit down at the bar and talk about the shit that's going on in my life right now. And that doesn't change. And like, it, you know, it, it changes in that my life keeps changing, but that keeps coming back up. And I think new things in life will always remind us of both like how much that person shaped who I am even now and will remind me of how sad I am that they're gone. And so I guess, you know, to me, I think it's just like, I've gotten to a point where reflecting on that makes me feel close to my dad and makes me feel close to John in a lot of ways. And so I think I just go, I don't know, you know, I don't think there's a way it's supposed to look. Like, I think for me, that's what it looks like. There's still days I cry about stuff. And then there's lots of days that I just, um, I'm, you know, able to be grateful that both who they were and losing them have brought me to the person I am now. And, you know, that's, that's something. I could, I I couldn't agree more. You know, I I lost my father when I was 12 years old and I can't help but think about that every day. When something happens in my life, I think about my dad was here, whether it was a beer or like he could just be here. That's when, that's part of my grief where it's like that, that's continuous. That's going to be there forever. Like my sister sent me a, uh, a video of my other sister renewing her vows with her husband. And this has nothing to do with my experience with my dad, but I was just thinking, man, if my dad was there, that, that's what got me emotional. This is literally 12 hours ago. And I was thinking about the, the new memories that are not there anymore with my father. And that, that, that's what gets me as a grown man today. All the, all the moments and that I, all the memories that I, couldn't have with my dad now. Like that, that's like my grief 20 plus years later, thinking about if he was here. And I feel that I'm the same way. Like when shit happens in my life, let alone grief, I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know. And that I don't know looking up at the cosmos or the hell you want to call it. That kind of gives me comfort because I feel like I'm not the only one that doesn't know. And, uh, that's it. I don't, I just don't know. I don't know. And it's frustrating, but it's comforting at the same time, whatever the hell that means. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. I feel like I said, I have a little, a lot, we just started talking now, but I, I feel a lot of similarities in your perspective and I love it. Uh, one, one last question before I give you the, the mic to say whatever the hell you want. What do you believe happens after we die? Oh, this, I think this comes out of, right out of the, the, what you just said, right? Like, I, my answer is a bad answer. Um, I have no idea. Like I, there are days where I'm like, God, I hope there's something, you know, that's out there. And there are days that I'm like, you know, I think that I believe certainly that we are, we are energy, right? I believe that our energy is, stays somewhere. And maybe that is just in this 
physical world and going back into to everything else. And, you know, I find comfort in that. I don't think I need, like some people, I think there are some days where I'm like, wow, that idea that there's, there's an afterlife, there's something after this, like there's some real comfort there. But, you know, there's a lot of days where I'm like, I just let the mystery be. I like sit with that uncertainty and I go, I don't know what was going on before uh, I was here and I don't know where I'll be after. And so all I can do is just focus on today, focus on the present, like loving the people I care about, doing the things I believe that are important in the world and kind of taking advantage of all the moments because I have no idea what's next. We're not going to know so we know, and that's part of it. I, I think it's fun to talk about, but also it's like, yeah, I don't know. So I'm just going to move on from now. Even though I, I, even though I believe that there's whatever the hell it is, there's something after. Uh, part of me is like, damn, this is as beautiful as life is. This shit's exhausting. So w- if we're going to do something after this for eternity, like, I don't know. Like, I, I'm pretty, I don't know if I want that. I Maybe nothing. I'll, maybe- I'll tell you a, a very quick story. I'll keep it very quick. Quick story about my dad. So my dad was a math major and um, uh, loved math. And one of my very early memories, I was in elementary school and my dad and I were cooking something. I can't remember what, but I dropped the last egg that we had for the recipe on the floor. And I got really upset that I like dropped this last egg. And my dad, like in this math way, kind of, taught me to understand the concept of infinity. He was like, well, you know, at how, how far was it when it dropped? Four feet? When was it halfway? Two feet? And we went all the way down. And he was like, well, half, half of what is zero? And I was like, I don't know, nothing. And he was like, why'd the egg hit the floor? And I was like, I don't know. This has blown my mind. And then we started talking about infinity. And it kept me awake for literally weeks that at that age, I think I was maybe eight, that I would lay in bed and think about infinity and the idea of what if we exist for infinity after we die. And like, it filled me with dread. Like it didn't fill me with comfort. It felt filled me with terror. <laughs> so to, to this day, I, I relate to that feeling you just shared because I'm like, it's kind of amazing to hope that that's what happens after this. And also it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> Oh my god! I know the I, the idea of infinity just makes me really uncomfortable. It's like that shit better be blissful if we're gonna be there for eternity. Because, like I said, life, however long I'm gonna live, is already challenging enough, and it's, I love it. But eternity, oh my god! I, I don't know. It's making me really uncomfortable right now. So let's just move on. We'll talk about this later. Uh, <laughs> before we get out of here, I, again, thank you. So I want to thank you so much for being here. And if I would love to give you the mic right now, a, a, definitely plug yourself. I'm going to put all your descriptions and links in your link tree or however you had on your Instagram for people to find you and your amazing platform, whether you're grieving or not grieving. I would love for people to find your podcast and everything that you're doing here. Um, so feel free to plug that. But also if you have any last words in regards to anyone that's listening or whatever, uh, feel free to drop the mic. Sure. No, I, you can find us anywhere at What's Your Grief. It's pretty easy. What's Your Grief.com or social media everywhere. We're at What's Your Grief. We have a book that came out in the fall that is called What's Your Grief. Um, and that is uh, kind of not your traditional grief book, I would say. Um, so yeah, check us out all those those different places. And we uh, always love to connect with people. So if there's something in this episode that like jumped out at you, please DM me. Instagram's usually a good place to reach me in DMs. So at what's your grief. 
Um, and otherwise, you know, no, I just, I, I love that you're doing this. Like I, I think that, that these conversations are so important and I just hope that people find ways to have conversations like this in their own lives. Like, I think if you're one of those people that struggles to ever bring it up that this person died or that you have somebody in your family with an addiction or that you're going through something, like there's this incredible relief that comes when you learn to say it out loud and where what tends to happen is then other people are like, oh, me too. And um, suddenly you realize you're, you're not as alone as you feel. So what, what you do here, I hope that people can find a way to make that happen in their real lives. I love that. I appreciate that. I love what you're doing. And uh, for the 30th thousandth time, I appreciate you being here. And I thank you all for listening to another episode of Dead Talks. Uh, I learned a lot. I think you've offered a lot of applicable ways for anyone grieving or not grieving even to just contemplate their situation in their life. So please let us know what you thought of this episode and what you learned. Uh, and we'll chop it up even further. Lisa, really appreciate you. And guys, go check out What's Your Grief. Until next time. <laughs>